Would you pray with me? Lord, this morning we want to open our hearts to hear what you would say to us through your word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence here with us. And we pray, Lord, as we think about your words through Amos, that we would also hear your words to us and that you would do a work in our hearts, that we would grow closer to you and to one another. And we ask, Lord, that you would have the honor and the glory in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Rob. We are getting near to the end of the book of Amos. We're closing in on the final chapters. If you have a physical Bible, you can flip quickly and notice that. What happens here at the end of the book is Amos moves from oracles or speeches about Israel's sin, and we start to see some of these prophetic visions that detail God's justice towards a sinful people. And each of these visions kind of leave no doubt of what God wants to do. He is patient, but he is holy. That's an important uh, thing to hold together, and it's a difficult thing for us to hold together, that God is patient, but he is still holy. And he calls his people to a certain sort of life together. He still calls us to a certain standard of life together. And at this point in Israel's story, they have turned against God in some really evil ways, and God needs to respond to that. His people, you could say, have turned against him. And so in the first nine verses of chapter 7, verses 1 to 9, you get three pictures Three visions that help depict to Amos what God is about to do. Let's take a look at those. So the first one shows a plague of consuming locusts. Now, I just want you to notice who, who's doing the action. Uh, if, you, if you know English uh, grammar, take a look at, the, at how the words are put together. Who's, who's forming the locusts? God is. Who's showing this to Amos? God is. Look down at verse 4. This is what the Lord God showed me. And the rest of the verse, and the Lord God was calling for a judgment. There's an emphasis here that this is not Amos's work. This is something that's initiated by God. God is the primary actor in Israel's story. And God is the primary actor in the church's story, in our lives as well. And so God is purposefully showing these visions to Amos. And Amos responds to each one in a particular way as well. So let's the first one here is the locust. He was forming the locust. And the first plague is really, really bad grasshoppers, right? Bad locusts. When we were in Eston, there's a... There's a plague just about every fall. But there's a particularly bad year of crickets. And I probably told you this story of the bad cricket year. It was so bad that you could vacuum the floor, especially basements. You could vac vacuum the basement floor 
and they'd all be gone. And then in five minutes, they would just come swarming back, like out of the walls and out of cracks. And uh, it was disturbing. And of course, crickets are cannibals. They'll eat each other. And so, <laughs> yeah. So sometimes you see them just sort of dragging other dead crickets along for lunch for later. And uh, you could hear them constantly. Uh, it, was, it was disturbing. And here come the locusts. It was so bad, uh, it was slippery on the highways from driving on the locusts, on the crickets. So here the locusts are coming. They're incredibly destructive. And notice what it says is the latter growth. When the latter growth was just beginning to sprout, verse 1. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. So the latter growth is typically the wheat crop. It's harvested after the barley for Israel. And the idea is if they lose that, then they're a little bit hooped for the following year. Uh, this, is, this is an essential crop for them, is, is what you kind of need to pick out here. So this, is, this will be really bad. This will be really bad for them. It'll be a devastating blow. But also notice this, that it's, it's talked about as either after or part of the king's mowings. And the king's mowings is the crop tax that you'd pay to the king. You have to give a portion. Uh, you don't just give money. You give a portion of your sort of goods as a farmer or as a like fig tree producer, whatever it might be. As a rancher, you give that right to the king. And so there's a sense in which God is destroying what the king may have felt he deserved. And throughout this passage, you get this real sense that God is going hard at Jeroboam. Jeroboam's the one that's led Israel into their sin. And yes, everyone's sort of to blame for participating, but Jeroboam should have known better as Israel's king. And so it's coming down particularly hard on him. Then the second picture is consuming fire. And it's consuming like in the way the locusts are consuming. Both are devouring pictures. This time we see the fire sort of devours the sea and the land. And they're both sort of these pictures of like apocalyptic judgment, right? Like end of the world kind of stuff. God showing up and intervening and bringing his justice against the evil of this nation. And in both, both instances... Amos responds, and he just says, stop, right? Lord, can you please just stop? Please forgive. We're too small. That's what he means by Jacob's too small, right? The house of Jacob. We're too small. Uh, we'll just get wiped out. And the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, we're told the first time. Second time, verse 6, the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be. And this is great because it's this picture of how God... Like, like Amos, doesn't want to destroy people. God's heart is not to just like wipe people clean off the map. This is not his heart. His heart is that all would come into saving relationship with him. But our sin is this serious. It's not sort of, oops, I made a mistake. It's like, no, this actually separates me from God. It puts me in danger of death spiritual death and we need to take that seriously and so amos both times says god please stop and god says okay and again it's this picture of god's patience god's long suffering is almost a good good phrase for that his long suffering his willingness to suffer for a long time as he puts up with us right that's what's going on here and then you get to the third line and the third picture 
uh, has to do with, with the plumb line. It's a little bit of a different, different scenario. So we get this sense God is patient. Amos sees it. Uh, he's patient with Israel. Uh, he's reliable. This is the other thing is God is so reliable in his goodness and in his patience. If you think of him compared to the other ancient Near Eastern gods, those gods were like fickle. They would just do whatever they wanted. The way that people thought of them was you had to offer the sacrifices to sort of keep the God happy. And the people were sort of just like slaves to the God. Uh, but in the Bible, the Judeo-Christian worldview is fundamentally different from that, is that God creates us to be in loving relationship with us. He doesn't make us his slaves. He gives us free will and invites us into loving sort of joy and harmony and working together with him for the good of his world and for society. And course when that goes sideways God intervenes but we have a fundamentally different picture of how humans are to relate to God and so the fact that God relents and God is patient is 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 really significant for the people at the time but then we get to this third picture as I said and it's a little bit different now we have a plumb line so we know right off the bat this is a different sort of picture right the first two are really parallel and God is standing beside a wall that's built with a plumb line. And he's got the plumb line in his hand. I should have had one here this morning. Right? This is a string, essentially, with a weight fastened at the bottom. And you can place it up beside the wall. And the weight's sort of allowed to just hang there. And you can see what's true, what's truly vertical, right? If the wall is actually true to the plumb line. And whether or not it's going to be secure and to hold. And what that means is... If the wall is not true or not straight or leaning, it will eventually grow weaker. And over time, maybe not immediately, but over time, it will eventually fall apart and break. It's just there's this, there's this weakness that's going on in the plumb line. It's, it's strayed from the truth of the plumb line. The wall is broken, right? This is the idea. And it may not collapse immediately, like I said. It may not even look like it's weak. Like if we held up a plumb line to one of these walls, I don't know. They all look pretty good to me. Uh, from the outside, they seem okay, perhaps. I don't know. Maybe some of you can tell if things are not good. Maybe we should know that. I think the building's okay, right? Uh, but if, if you hold up the plumb line, you'll get a truer sense of whether the thing is all right or not. So what's God doing here? He's holding up. He says, he's holding, I'm setting a plumb line, he says in the midst of my people. And of course, the picture is a wall, verse 7. He's got it beside a wall that was built with the plumb line. So this is a wall that originally was set up correctly, but maybe isn't anymore. And then God actually interprets what the wall is. The wall is Israel. The wall is his people. Now, what is Israel built on or built by? What was the truth that Israel was built on? It's the Torah. It's God's word. Right? It's the first five books of the Bible. It's, it's God's creative words spoken over this people. And there's sort of this sense here that uh, the plumb line won't lie. Right? The, the, the power of God's word is such that when, when it's held up and things are measured against it, you can see whether uh, a thing or a person or perhaps a nation or an idea holds true or not when compared to God's word. 
And so God holds up the plumb line in the midst of the people. He holds up his word, you could say. This is the standard of what's true, right? It's the line by which the wall of Israel was established. And notice what's different from the other two visions. Amos, in the locust picture and in the fire picture, what did he do? He asked God to relent, right? He said, God, don't, don't do it. We're too small. But this plumb line test is so clear, and the nation is so obviously out of line that its collapse can't be prevented. And Amos doesn't ask God to relent, right? It's like Israel's hardened in her sin, and this time Amos doesn't bother because it's so necessary what's to come. And notice again what's referenced. What does God say needs to be destroyed? Is it just innocent people? It's not. What does he say in verses 8 and 9? He says, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I'll never again pass by them. Now what gets destroyed? What is on God's heart to destroy here? Verse 9. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. High places are where you go to worship. So that's a reference to places where idolatries happened and where they've set up sort of their false idols. We talked about that a little bit as we walked through the book. Uh, again, reference to Isaac is meaning uh, Isaac the patriarch. So this is Israel, right? God's people. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. So again, the reference to Jeroboam being the one that needs to, needs to come down. That's, that's pointing back to the issue with the king's mowings again, right? So the false worship, the worship that's, that's destroyed this nation as they turned away from God is laid at the feet of the one that's to blame, who's led against that evil. It's, it's, it's laid right at the feet of Jeroboam II. And then our text really shifts gears. It goes from these prophetic visions to like this little story about Amaziah and Amos. Before we do that, again, just to, just to sort of summarize the point here is uh, it's a picture that can be disturbing for us that God does deal with sin. And, and we've said it a couple times, I think, over the course of this series is, yes, God indeed loves us. Absolutely, he loves you. But he loves you in the way a father loves a child and knows when a child is doing something that's dangerous and calls that child away from the thing that's dangerous. And if a child chooses, even an adult child, chooses to ignore the good instruction, the plumb line teaching of a good father, there's real consequences, right? And that's what you're seeing here is this is not God being mean. This is God, his heart grieved, responding to the people and what they've really done against him and against each other. Because all through Amos, what has been linked together? Failure in their worship results in a failure to love each other well. And when there's a failure for, of justice and oppression towards the poor, it's a direct reflection of our hearts towards God, right? That's Amos's point. In fact, that's the prophet's point uh, many, many times. And so when you get your, your vertical relationship with God broken, it results in broken horizontal relationships. And so God is not just being sort of grumpy, right? He's actually very patient, but he is responding out of his holiness and his love. But this is a hard word. It's so hard. The text stops and gives us a little picture of what's happening in Jeroboam's court and some of his prophets. So it jumps. Now look at verse 10. 
Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel. Now that should give us a warning sign because so far in Amos, Bethel is not a good place, right? Bethel's where they set up golden calves. Bethel's where this idolatrous worship is going on. Here's Amaziah, the priest of Bethel. That should probably tell you a little bit about what this guy's going to be about. He sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel. So he's got the king's ear, and now he can send a message right to the king. He says, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said that Jeroboam, meaning you, O king, shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. Now, we didn't have Amos say that outright, but that's sort of a, a summary of what Amos has been saying all throughout, right? Uh, so suddenly we get this little narrative story. And Amaziah, this priest of Jeroboam, it, he's, you know what? He kind of represents a sort of false religion. He, he has this sort of wicked, like, elitist establishment thing going on where he's got the king's ear, and then he stirs up the king against Amos, who's... God's faithful prophet. And so we've kind of got a religious person who's actually evil at heart, and then we have Amos who's trying to follow God's word. And the two are kind of about to clash over what it means uh, to speak to God and for God to Israel and what's about to go on. Uh, so Amaziah calls out Amos, and he basically says in verse 12, he says, just get out of here. Like, we don't like what you're saying, so could you please leave, right? But in worse, in worse language, right? Get away, O seer, he says. Go and flee away back to the land of Judah. Remember, Amos isn't from Israel. He's from Judah, and he's gone up to Israel. So he's in, like, a kind of a foreign country in some sense. And so he's being told, go home, eat bread there, and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel. And then notice how Amaziah describes Bethel. Is it God's sanctuary? No, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. That should raise some red flags. Amaziah doesn't seem to care about God's sanctuary. He cares about the king's sanctuary. And he sees Bethel as a temple of the kingdom, as a place for sort of a state religion to be purported. So this is, we're very far from loving and serving Yahweh. God at this point. This is something else. And he basically says, we don't want you here. Can you go back home? Uh, the people of God, friends, are called to speak uh, the truth to power. There's no human establishment that is sort of outside or exempt from God's purview. And what that means is that if we put our hope in an institution outside of God, even if it's a quasi-religious institution like Amaziah represents here, that thing will eventually get upended by God. Uh, God is not interested in keeping this sort of false religious establishment going. And he's going he's gonna to strike that down. He's going to undo it. This is a kingdom that's founded on a sort of false worship, on human evil. And notice that Amaziah also calls Amos a seer. Now that's possibly also vindictive, that he's, he doesn't think of him as a true prophet. Uh, and perhaps uh, the prophets would have been part of sort of a royal guild of prophets, and so he's, and there's likely, like, if your dad was a prophet, there's a good chance you get to be part of the special prophet club. And so Amaziah is sort of saying, like, Amos, you're an outsider, you're just a seer, like, go home, 
you're not special. You're not good enough, right? Just get out of here. Uh, and notice that Am Amaziah's focus is we're going to essentially keep saying the things that don't upset us and that uh, hold up Jeroboam. We don't want to hear that Jeroboam's no good. Thank you. And uh, anyone that disagrees with us can just go home. That's kind of Amaziah's point. Amaziah kind of is like, like the religious person that only wants to hear that God brings lots of blessing and lots of prosperity and lots of successes and doesn't, doesn't care about sin. Right? That's Amaziah. He's, he's saying, we don't want to hear that we're doing things poorly. We don't want to hear that God doesn't like us, what we're doing. We don't want to hear any of that. We just want to carry on. He's, uh, he's unwilling to hear about the need for obedience to God and to deal with our own sin. Um, and you may think, yeah, that's really, that's not great. But I think, I think that spirit can still be really present in our churches sometimes. And, and even in our own in our own hearts that we think, um, and I like it when God acts this way. I think I'd rather just ignore these other parts about him. Um, I've had people in church say to me, they want me to just preach certain things, right? They don't want me to say things that are uncomfortable uh, or something, I don't know. Um, but my job as, as a pastor is not really just to make you comfortable. It's not really the point of me. Um, I'm teaching a class uh, in January called uh, Pastoral Ministry and Formation for Eston. Uh, it's an online course. Anyone can take it if you want. And I was working on the syllabus, and at the top of my syllabus, I found two really good quotes from Eugene Peterson. Uh, he's reflected a lot on sort of the calling and vocation of pastors, and it just it connected to me regarding Amaziah and Amos, because we're talking about sort of religious leaders and their hearts, right? And Eugene said this about pastors, and I think he's touching on something that Amaziah is doing here. Eugene's concern, he said this, the vocation of pastors has been replaced by the strategies of religious entrepreneurs with business plans. And uh, that was probably in the 80s, 90s, Eugene said that. And I think he's been right on. He's been really pretty discerning on that point. Um, but Amaziah is like that. Amaziah is a religious entrepreneur that just wants to keep things going, right? He's not actually interested in hearing from God. And uh, Eugene, who's so good at this, for so many pastors, he's been a pastor to us, is uh, to call pastors back to a life of prayer and scripture, um, that it's not about building uh, a big brand or a corporation, so to speak. The second quote that I love, this is again from Eugene, is this. And here he's, he's referring to uh, the ordination of a pastor and what a pastor is called to. And he's sort of speaking on behalf of the people, as though the people are saying this over the pastor. And he says this, you, meaning the pastor, you are not the minister of our changing desires or our time-conditioned understanding of our needs or our secularized hopes for something better. And with these vows of ordination, we lash you fast to the mast of word and sacrament so you will be unable to respond to the siren voices. And the picture there is of, of a ship in the waters and the, the, 
the one who is uh, ordained, the pastor who's ordained is like a guy being tied to the mast, right? And this is the picture from Greek mythology of, of you tie, your, you have to tie yourself to the mast when you go past the sirens, right? The sirens are sort of the angelic voices out in the water that are calling men to leave their ships, but it, like to their own death. That's what siren sound means, the sirens. And here Eugene is saying, as pastors, as churches, there are siren sounds around us. And we need to hold fast to the ministry of the word and the ministry of the table. Right? That was Eugene's point. There's all sorts of things that as a church or as a pastor we can be allured by, like success and platform and production and power and money and all of that. Um, but we're called to be faithful to this, which is to preach the word of God, uh, to welcome people to the table of the Lord, uh, to shepherd people, to notice what God is doing and to join in on it. That's my heart for you and for our church. And sometimes God's word is stretching. This is a stretching word this morning. Um, it can surprise us. It can convict us, and it should be because it's God's words to us, not Nick's words to us. And uh, my job is not to just sort of echo things that are comfortable to hear, uh, but to seek to be as faithful as I can to this word and the God who speaks through it. And uh, I can get all sorts of some things wrong along the way, trying to do that well, uh, but that's my heart. I remember Wes Mills, who's our ACOP church fellowship president, and he was commenting once. He said, and I, this is so, I feel this as well. He said, it's fine to question my ideas about vision and projects and goals and where we're going and how to get there. That's fine. You can question that. But he said, please don't question my integrity. He said, we may not agree on how to get where we need to go, uh, but my heart is to lead us prayerfully. Uh, in Jesus, and uh, that's my heart for you as well. Uh, it's tough when someone calls your character into question, and that's what Amaziah does here to Amos, right? He calls Amos's character into question, so I feel for Amos here, but I love his response. Look at verses 14 and 15. Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. Like, dude, I, this is not the family business. I did not train for this. Uh, wh who called me to this? Verse 15, but the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, go and prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, I hear the word of the Lord. Just pretty, just pretty good. I love, I love his backbone here. Right? This, he's basically saying this isn't about me. This this thing that God needs to do in Israel, this is not about me. This is not about my pedigree or lack of pedigree, right? Or education or lack thereof. This is about being faithful to God. What is God doing? What is God saying? And Amos essentially says, I don't speak with my own authority. I, I speak with God's authority. And this is what God's called me to say. And essentially is that there's judgment for your sins, for your lack of repentance, right? Jeroboam and his family will fall, and the land will be divided. And Amaziah and his little religious establishment cult thing he's got going on are also going to fall. Uh, and all the people are going to go into exile. And what Amos does here is he's actually, he's actually fulfilling God's word that God spoke over Moses way back in Deuteronomy. This is Deuteronomy 30. So this is when Israel's fresh out of Egypt and they're being established as a people. This is what God speaks over them. Deuteron Deuteronomy 30, 15 to 18. 
See, I set before you today life and good or death and evil. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will have life and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you're not obedient, and if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and to possess. This is a theme all throughout Israel's story, uh, that if they don't follow, there's real consequences. And notice again the contrast between Amaziah and Amos. Amos not looking for glory, seeking the Lord, trying to faithfully proclaim a really difficult message, right, to God's people. Meanwhile, you have Amaziah who's like looking for honor, which is now going to get taken away, and he's deprived of a future. He's going to lose his profession because he's going to be in an unclean land pretty soon. And these are, the, these are like the punishments that are heaped on him as a religious leader who's recognized by the king, but not by God. And for any of us in, in leadership, but for all of us as Christians, but for any of us in pastoral leadership, that's a good reminder for us. Amos was rejected and unknown. It had little power or influence. He has no position in terms of social status, but God uses him to prophesy to Israel and to call them out of sin and into repentance. And, you know, friends, we're also not to live just for others' approval. We're also called to live for Jesus, to live for him, and to faithfully uphold what he calls us to do. And really, I think that's the, that's the message of this passage for us, is uh, do we hear God's word? And once we've heard it, do we obey it? It's one thing to, to be told something. It's another thing to actually actually do it. There's a final picture I want to just draw your attention to, and this is actually in the next chapter, the beginning of chapter 8. We didn't read this this morning. But there's a final picture, vision, that God gives to Amos. Chapter 8, verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. So we've had locusts, fire, plumb line, summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? You know, it's, it's interesting. So this one is paralleling the plumb line episode because in both of those, God asks Amos what he sees, not the other ones. Amos, what do you see? And he says, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, the end has come for my people Israel. And you go, uh, what's the summer fruit have to do with any of that? It goes on to say that Israel will be devoured and we get then to the end of the book, which you think, man, this is really depressing. Uh, does it end on just a terrible note? Actually, it ends on a really uplifting note. Uh, but we'll get there probably next week. The summer fruit in Hebrew is kayetz, is the word. And the end, the end has come for my people, is the word ketz. And basically, the summer fruit signifies the last harvest. It's like the long summer of God's patience has finally come to an end. The summer fruit's been gathered in, but there's been no harvest of repentance. And he says to Amos, what do you see? Amos says, Kayetz. And God says, yes, the Ketz is coming. The end is coming. It's the sort of Hebrew wordplay thing. The Hebrew poetry, they just love this stuff. They're all over it. They, like, they love when their words rhyme and like mean similar things. They just love it. It's crazy. That's the, uh, the idea here is um, 
we can, we can exhaust God's patience to some degree. And again, this is, a, this is not to say that we are fearful of, of God's sort of vindictive wrath, but we are meant to be fearful of the reality of our own sinfulness towards a holy God. That God loves us so much. He loves us so much. And, and that's sort of the, how, the, how the, the passage ends with a series of pictures and, and this, this interplay between Amos and Amaziah. And I think for us this morning, one of the questions I want to ask us is, what do you want to be known for? What do you want to be remembered for? What are the things that you want to mark your own life when your life is all said and done, when the summer fruit of your life has been, has been harvested, so to speak? Amaziah was a man who was very religious-looking, he attended, we wouldn't say church, but he attended worship regularly. He did all the sacrificing. He volunteered at all the special events. He came week after week. He probably had a very sort of religious family life. Um, but God was not pleased with the religious trappings of Amaziah's life. Because at the end of the day, Amaziah wasn't interested in a real relationship with God. We can be religious but far from God. Or we can be of little renown, like Amos, and seek to be faithful to God. And that's a question that, that sort of drives at our own sense of pride, our own desires for our own lives of what we'll be known for. And my prayer for us is that uh, when God examines your life, with the plumb line? Is there areas that are not true to him? Are there areas that are out of joint, out of line with his word? Are there areas where uh, you're seeking to remain faithful to him and obedient to him? Um, and that's wonderful. And the spirit of the Lord is, is helping you to do that well. There'll come a time, just like it, here at Israel, as the summer fruit's brought in, there'll come a time at the end of all of our lives when our summer fruit is brought in, and we will have to give an account for how we lived. And my prayer for all of us is that we would be maybe people of little renown, but people like Amos, who sought to be faithful to God and to his word, and sought to be true to the plumb line of God's word, and not like Amaziah. Not someone who at the end of their life people would say, man, that guy, he went to church all the time. He was just terrible. That guy said he loved Jesus, but he treated people horribly. That guy was more interested in his own influence and power than he was in Jesus. That's a real danger for us. Um, so my prayer for all of us is, as we think maybe this week, and actually say to God, God, I'm okay with you putting up the plumb line for me to examine my life. As we let him do that, let's choose to have an attitude like Amos, which says, I want to be faithful to God and obedient to him uh, first and foremost. And whatever else may come as blessing or not is great, um, but at the end of my life, this is what I want to be known for. So would you stand with me and let's pray. Let's pray together to that end.
uh, Jesus, this morning, uh, we want to thank you as we have worshipped and celebrated you this morning. We thank you for your salvation and for your abounding love towards us, uh, that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And Lord, we thank you that because of you and because of the cross, we can be set free from the power of our sin, set free from uh, the, the inevitability of our death and our separation from you, and that because of you, Lord, you uh, invite us back into relationship with yourself. Um, I pray, Jesus, that our relationship with you would be a true relationship, that we would seek to be faithful to you, Lord. And we have lots of examples in this passage of what happens when a person like Amaziah or a nation like Israel in this moment uh, wanders from you. And Lord, that temptation's still very real. It's still there for all of us. We can choose to take on religious trappings and come to church and do the thing and uh, you know, share a scripture verse on Facebook or something. Uh, but that doesn't really reflect our hearts. And uh, Lord, you know our hearts better than we know our own hearts. And so we just pray today, Jesus, we just say we give you permission to put up the plumb line. And Lord, whatever you might find in us that is not true, would you show us what that is? And Lord, we just pray that you, by your spirit, would help us to repent of that thing and uh, to seek you first. And Jesus, we, we also just pray over us as a church, Lord, that uh, you'd set up the plumb line. And if there's areas in our lives as a community that need to be addressed, Lord, help us to do that well, uh, to seek you and to be faithful to you. Um, Lord, we, we know we're always a work in progress. We're never perfect. Uh, but Jesus, we don't want to uh, ignore glaring faults or ignore issues of sin. Um, and so the plumb line's your word. We pray, Jesus, that by your word, your living and active word, you would speak, uh, that you would, by your spirit, help us to read and interpret it well and in community together. And we ask, Lord, that you would deepen in each of us a desire to, to be in prayer and in your word so we know what that plumb line is and we can abide by what is true and what is good. Uh, Jesus, we pray against uh, the spirit of Amaziah, which would seek uh, position and power that looks religious uh, over a faithful relationship with you. And Lord, our, our prayer as a people, as a church, is that when people would look at our church community, at our church family, uh, they would see faithful people. And Lord, we just pray that that would be part of our legacy as a church, that we Maybe we didn't always do things right, but our hearts were to seek you first. Lord, that's our hearts. I pray over my friends here today. Lord, uh, we're all in different positions. Some of us are really hurting this morning. Some of us are, are doing great. Things are well. Um, Jesus, we pray that you would just continue to lead us and guide us and grow us. Because that's what this word's about. And Lord, would you just continue by your spirit uh, to make us want to be faithful followers of you. Lord, we just lay down uh, our sins this morning. We lay down our anxieties this morning. Lord, your word says uh, you have not given us a spirit of fear, 
but of power and love and a sound mind. Uh, so, Father, uh, in the name of Jesus, we pray that by your Spirit, uh, you would take the place of fear in our hearts and that you would fill it with your peace and your hope. Uh, Lord, we lay that down today. Lord, where there's uh, other areas in our lives that we need to give to you, we pray that you would show us that and help us to do that. Uh, Lord, we just want to say we love you. Continue to grow us and shape us. Lord, we're so blessed and so thankful for all that you've done for us. Uh, Jesus, we lift up this morning uh, our world, the places where we need you to come and bring your justice and your grace and your peace. We think especially of Ukraine and the Middle East this morning. And we pray, Lord, that you would come and set things right, uh, that you would protect uh, the innocent, and, Lord, that you would uh, remind us, Lord, in these things that you are still in control and that you will work things out for your good and your glory. Lord, we pray for our own nation and our own leaders that you would bring salvation uh, and life and the presence and power of your spirit to each one. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to live faithfully for you in a land that does not always love you or worship you. Help us to do that well. And uh, Lord, as we head into this week, whether it's school or work or caring for a loved one or simply going about our day, we pray that you would take uh, precedence in our hearts, Lord, that you would be the one we would seek to follow and that we would orient our lives around you, that we would structure our days around you, and that we would put you first. We ask this in your name. Amen. <laughs>